I'm Kat. I'm Taylor. And welcome to another very special Halloween episode of Square Mile of Murder. Ooh, spooky, spook, spook, ghost noises. Ooh. Bravo. Thank very you. well done. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, today's episode isn't really true crime at all, but I, you know, it definitely fits into the categories of creepy as fuck and what the actual fuck. And I really wanted to tell you guys a story, so we figured that Halloween is as good a time as any to tell it, because it doesn't fit in anywhere else. <laughs> uh, so without further ado, let's go back to 1920s Harlem with the Collier Brothers. Yes. So on March 21st, 1947, NYPD's 122nd Precinct received an anonymous complaint about an awful smell of decomposition coming from the dilapidated house at 2078 Fifth Avenue in Harlem. The police sent an officer to check out the house, but they weren't really that worried because there were always reports about goings on in this house and they never really amounted to anything. The house belonged to the Collier brothers, a pair of shut-ins who hadn't been seen out and about for years. Uh, they had achieved a kind of local celebrity status because of their lifestyle and rumors uh, about what went on behind closed doors. Police expected that it would be pretty similar to all the other times that they had been called to the house. They would eventually be able to make contact with one of the brothers, Langley, who would then take them to see his disabled brother, Homer, proving that they were both alive, and the police would then be off and on their way. But this particular visit would prove to be nothing like any of the strange going-ons that the police had encountered at the Collier Brothers' home before. So, let's go back to the beginning and see what led to this strange sequence of events. So, Homer Lusk Collier was born on November 6th, 1881. And his younger brother, Langley Wakeman Collier, was born almost four years later on October 3rd, 1885. Their father was Herman Livingston Collier, a well-known gynecologist who worked at Bellevue Hospital in Manhattan. And their mother was opera singer Susie Gage Frost Collier. These are some names these people are packing. Yeah. Holy shit. Yet their parents were first cousins. Cool. No. That's definitely not a cause of any of the problems that we're going to run into in the rest of this, this episode. No, not pro at all. Pro probably not. The family were very well off, and Dr. Collier was known to be eccentric and was often seen paddling a canoe down the river from where the family lived in Upper Manhattan to the hospital in Kipps Bay. So I think... That's the East River? Uh, if it's Bellevue, then it's the East Side, yeah. Yeah, so that's the East River. Because why not? I just, uh, I can't imagine rowing a canoe down either river on either side of Manhattan uh, because they're so disgusting. So <laughs> it, it's, I mean, I know it was, you know, a while back but like it's just this is it's a choice it is it is a choice 
Uh, in adulthood, the brothers would brag that they could trace their roots back to the Fortune, which was the ship from England to the New World that landed a year after the Mayflower. Wow. Both of the brothers attended Columbia University, with Homer studying law and Langley studying chemistry and engineering. Dr. Collier moved the family into the now infamous Brownstone at 2078 Fifth Avenue in 1909. Neither of the brothers had married or moved out on their own, so despite being well into their 20s, they both moved into the Harlem Brownstone with their parents. I mean, why not? It saves you so many bills. Also, like, it's a whole building. Like, yeah, so many of those brownstones now are chopped up into how many apartments? Like, six, eight, so... There's plenty of room. Yeah. It's fine. Like, you could have a whole floor just to yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like, we once looked at a house that was not as big as, like, that kind of brownstone, but it was over, like, four or five floors. Yeah. And it had previous, like, it hadn't been split up, but, like, the upper floor had its own little kitchenette and mm -hmm. everything. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I can live up here and never see anybody. Yep. Oh, yeah. But we didn't move there. <laughs> the The house we moved into when I was 12, they had, like, it had a big attic space, and they had started to finish the attic and had, like, made plans on the drywall for, like, well, this is where a bathroom would go, and this is where a little, like, kitchen would go. And so when we first looked at the house, I was like, great, we'll finish the attic, and I'll live up here, far away from you guys. And my parents were like, yeah, we'll see about that. Well, <laughs> we never did anything in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> and then we sold the house, so. <laughs> but, like, I was just like, yeah, this is great. I'll have my own apartment at 13 years old. <laughs> yeah. Just a little rough plumbing, and uh, it'll be fine. <laughs> but alas... So Homer practiced law while Langley became an accomplished concert pianist playing at Carnegie Hall, and he also worked as a piano dealer. That's like a big, a big deal. Yeah. Uh, this is back when like musicians were valued. Yeah. And like, if you think about like 1900s New York entertainment, it's the theater. Like. Yeah. That's the thing. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, so life was pretty normal for the Collier family. We should probably point out about now that whilst Harlem may have like a kind of working class, racially diverse reputation these days, back in the early 1900s, it was considered an affluent neighborhood. So obviously now Harlem is well within the New York City limits. It's it's in Manhattan. Yeah. You've got Bronx to the north. But there was a time when it was considered the suburbs. It was a place where the wealthier, predominantly white families moved to, so they were out of the city. I think we briefly mentioned this in the Manhattan Well We did. Episode. Because the house Hamilton Grange that Alexander Hamilton was having built was up in Harlem. Mm. And at that point in time, which was like 17... 80 or like 1800 or something harlem was farmland i was gonna say it was rural then wasn't it yeah it was really rural at that point so as the years passed more people moved up there but it was definitely still like uh an escape from the city kind of thing yeah 
1919, Susie and Herman divorced, and Herman moved out of the family home. Uh, Homer and Langley chose to remain with their mother in the house in Harlem. When Herman died four years later in 1923, he left his medical practice and all of his possessions to his sons, who moved everything into storage at the family home. Susie, Homer, and Langley continued their lives until 1929, when Susie died, and like Herman, she left all of her possessions to her sons, along with the four-story house in Harlem. The brothers continued to live fairly normal lives following their mother's death. Homer continued to practice law, while Langley continued to deal in pianos. Uh, The brothers even purchased another brownstone across the road from their home with the intention of converting it into an apartment block and renting it out. They also continued to regularly socialize outside of their home with friends and acquaintances. Uh, And apart from being unmarried and having never moved out of the family home, the brothers were seen as a little strange but lived fairly normal lives. That was until 1932 when Homer suffered a stroke at the age of 50. The stroke caused Homer to go blind, and Langley quit his job to become his elder brother's full-time carer. The stroke coincided with a major world event, which would also have a huge impact on the brothers' lives, and that is the Great Depression. You know, just like a small thing. Yeah... So remember how we said that Harlem had once been very pale Yale kind of suburban neighborhood? Following the Wall Street crash and the ensuing financial depression, once affluent areas such as Harlem rapidly became more working class as people from rural areas flooded into the cities and with it, it became more multicultural, more racially diverse. And while we think that this is a great thing, because we're not racist shitbags. The old wealthy families who had moved to areas such as Harlem as a way to show off their wealth weren't keen on their new neighbours, especially those of (sighs) colour. And you may ask, why didn't they just move? Well, the financial crash meant that inflation skyrocketed and property just wasn't worth much anymore, coupled with the sad and infuriating fact that white neighbourhoods were, and typically still are, more financially valuable than, you know, racially diverse neighbourhoods. So the brothers wouldn't have been able to afford to buy a like-for-like four-storey mansion in an exclusively white neighbourhood. Which I feel is the price you got to pay for being a racist. I mean, yeah, like, if you're that desperate, then you should just take whatever you can find. Also, they they bought another brownstone with the intention of converting it and renting it out. Yeah. Okay, way back in, like, 100 years ago. Even up until only a couple of decades ago, you could still legally discriminate about who you rented to. Yeah. Based on a whole host of like what are now protected characteristics. Yeah. Like race and sexuality, ethnicity, anything like that, nationality. Like, I still don't get who they thought they were going to be renting to because the kind of wealthy white families like they came from wouldn't be renting small apartments. Yeah, they would buy a a building or a house, yeah. Very kind of having your cake and eating it too. Yeah, I don't think they quite thought that through. As well as the Great Depression, the early 20th century saw the Great Migration, which was the mass movement of black people to northern industrial cities as they sought to leave behind the Jim Crow South. 
According to Wikipedia, in 1910, just a year after the Collier family moved to Harlem, the uh, people of color population was 10%. But by the 1930s, 70% of Harlemites were people of color. That is a big change in 20 years. That's, that's a massive change. And yeah, it does make sense considering everything. Yeah, considering everything else going on in the United States at that time. Yeah. And I think we just haven't had any kind of event like that in our lifetime to really appreciate how big, how rapidly things changed in such a short sp like space of time. I think we're living through it right now. If you think about, like, right now, just just looking at New York City, like, where traditionally housing has been horrendously expensive and and, like, not enough supply for the demand that mm -hmm. it, it's massively flipped since the start of the pandemic when everyone yeah fled so i feel like within a couple of years we're gonna see the same kind of like shifts in some of these neighborhoods yeah we'll see the the great uh <laughs> covid flea <laughs> i suppose we are seeing it because we've seen a lot of people especially in southern england you had a lot of very wealthy families who live in London and work in London. Um, now that they have to work from home, are like fleeing to the country. Yeah. And then suddenly realizing that the country is a lot different. It, it makes me really angry because it has a massive knock on effect. Like, I can't afford to buy in the place where I grew up. Yeah. And I'm not alone, most people. Even people with like much more secure employment than me and like steady income and everything can't afford to buy either yeah well i mean and it's because everyone is like fleeing the cities because they want space but then they're complaining oh well the hospital's like i remember reading one woman was like her daughter had very severe health problems she's like well the hospital's 45 minutes away it's like well did you not think of that before you uprooted your entire family yeah from the epicenter of the country that has the most funding yeah to a rural area yeah. It's almost like that funding should be distributed better. It should be. It's almost like... <laughs> mm. Go figure. <laughs> In a couple of years, we'll see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it, how it all kind of shakes down. Because I don't know if, if maybe at a certain point there's going to be a big rush back into cities to maybe take advantage mm. of lower housing prices or whatever it may be. So be interesting to I see. I just enjoy that slumlords are suffering because <laughs> housing should be a human right. Yes, I agree with that. It should not be for the privileged few. Yes. All these people that bought up all this property to rent out on Airbnb and are now saddled with massive mortgages. Oops. Business is risk, and that's a risk. Yeah, that's that. You know, the market bears what it, what it will. So, in like ten years' time, we'll be able to look back at this and look at changing yeah. population stats in this like same kind of way. But yeah, but so sort of previous to the pandemic, I don't think in our lifetime, at least, in sort of in the UK or in the US, we've seen yeah. Same, obviously, May like maybe the two thousand eight crash, but. But that's more like suburban. I was going to say like the Middle East, especially with like Syria. Mm -hmm. 
and now Afghanistan as well, there's been mass migration, mm-hmm. but not sort of domestic. Yeah, yeah, like in- migration internal. in the same way. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So we'll see. I'll um, yeah. keep, keep you posted. Uh, check back in five, ten years. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So Homer was pretty much housebound following his stroke, but Langley often left the house under the cover of darkness to purchase food and other necessities, which is weird, but you know. I mean, I wouldn't, if I was scared for people who lived around me i wouldn't go out at night no no i'd go out in the day when everyone's at work yeah so again it's a choice he would walk for miles and miles across new york city collecting anything he saw discarded on the street that could be useful to them or perhaps that he thought could be (laughs) useful to them um It was reported that he would walk as far as Williamsburg in Brooklyn just to buy a loaf of bread and would scavenge through the bins behind grocers and butchers shops. Harlem to fucking Williamsburg is a hike. Yeah. I did Google how far it was and I just realized I didn't put it in the script. Well, the island of Manhattan is like 13 miles long. So Is it? Yeah. So you're... You're you're doing like most of that, and then over to Brooklyn. Yeah. So say you're going like ten miles, and then I'd say even like eleven, because like Williamsburg is it, it's North Brooklyn, though, isn't it? Hang on. Wait. I have I have my New York City guidebook because I've been planning a trip to New York, but would have been taken last year had it not been for COVID. Okay, so Williamsburg is like, the Williamsburg Bridge is like Lower East Side. So, according to Google Maps, to walk from 2078 Fifth Avenue to Williamsburg, it would take three hours and 13 minutes, and it's like 10 miles, give or take. Oh, so yeah. It's no small wonder, it's not like... It's not a quick jaunt. (laughs) It's not like saying going from Harlem to the upper east or west side or where's further south than that or even like midtown yeah you have to be really committed i mean now uptown downtown blocks are shorter than crosstown blocks but when you've got like a hundred of them to cover (laughs) it's still it's gonna take a minute more than that actually like nearly 120 that's a long walk. So long. That's a long walk for fucking bread. But yeah, so, you know, go figure. Um, he also collected newspapers because he believed that one day Homer's site would be restored and he would need the papers to catch up on all of the world events. Uh, as well as looking after his brother, Langley built crystal radios, which were their only connection to the outside world, and tinkered with various appliances and inventions that they had acquired as the brothers became recluses rumors began to spread around the neighborhood about the pair some believed that the brothers were sitting on a vast fortune of gold and treasures that they were too distrustful to hand over to a bank or safety deposit box Uh, this led to numerous unsuccessful attempts to break into the house in the early years of their reclusiveness 
Is that a real word? It is now. Reclusivity? I feel like reclusiveness seems more likely. Uh, Langley solved this problem by building a series of tunnels and booby traps throughout the house so the intruders would be crushed under piles of trash that were now stacked up all over the house. Now, I'm not so sure I would call that a solution to that problem. <laughs> uh, perhaps uh, solving one problem with another is yeah. one way to put it. You'd have to have a very good memory to know where all the traps were, and you'd have to be like very, very like ambidextrous and really on it and everything to make sure you didn't trip them. Yeah, like very nimble and ugh, mm. terrifying. Yeah. Uh, they also boarded up the windows so that people couldn't peer into the property and eventually stopped paying their bills, which led to the gas and, ele el the gas and electricity being shut off. Within a few years, the house was so cluttered that it was little more than a maze of tunnels with a couple of nests in which the two brothers slept. Terrifying. Yeah. This is the stuff that urban legends are made of. Yes. Uh, many people tried to gain access to the property over the years, but Langley refused entry to everyone except the police. He even forbade doctors from treating his brother as he claimed that he knew better than any doctor. But that wasn't quite the case. I mean... Langley believed that his brother's sight would be restored by eating black rye bread with peanut butter and 100 oranges every week. Unsurprisingly, this didn't work and Homer remained blind until his death. I mean, I can get behind rye bread. I love a good rye. I miss good rye. But, um... A hundred oranges every week is that sounds terrible. Like it would be that'd be really bad for your digestive system. Yeah, and you're in a house that's just tunnels. Yeah, you've got no utilities. I don't think that's very sanitary because you're basically going to have diarrhea permanently. Yeah, there's no delicate way to put that. It's just it seems like not the right choice, basically. Clearly. Didn't work, so. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, doctors weren't the only ones whom Langley refused to permit entry to the house. There were reports that in 1941, a small fire broke out in the house, and Langley would not allow firemen in to put it out, insisting on doing it himself. Seems like a good plan. Uh, nor would he allow them in to check on his brother, who by that point was bedbound as a result of uh, his stroke and rheumatoid arthritis, which ev eventually developed into paralysis. Uh, due to their reclusiveness, neither brother had had an income, and they failed to keep up the payments on the brownstone they had uh, purchased across the street with the intention of converting it into apartments, so it was repossessed. Uh, utility companies tried many times to gain access to the house to remove old electric and gas meters, but each time they were met with hostility from Langley and failed to enter the property. If you Google the Collier Mansion, or the Collier Brothers, there are photos of a man, I think it was from the gas board, it was either the gas or electricity board, mm -hmm. up on the third, third floor trying to climb in through a window to get access because you meet as a technically property of... Yeah, the companies, yeah. Not you. Oh, shit. So we were like, 
literally scaling the walls to try and get in to recover things like that oh that's not good for anybody involved is it Mm. no they had also stopped paying the mortgage on the house that they were living in and as a result the bank broke down the door of the house in 1942 in an attempt to foreclose and repossess the property Uh, but langley was there waiting for them just inside the front door Uh, and he wrote them a check for six thousand seven hundred dollars which would be roughly $111,600 or 81,000 pounds today, paying off the mortgage in full. It's just that he, like, refused to leave the house to mail the checks or, like... You'll see. Um, He also paid off the brothers' outstanding debts at the same time, although he argued unsuccessfully that they shouldn't have to pay taxes because neither of them had any income. I mean... I mean... Yeah, in this country at least, you can't pay income tax if you don't have an income. Yes. You can voluntarily pay national insurance. Yeah. But you can't not pay local rates, local taxes. Yeah. They have to be covered in some form. If you're not employed, you should be signed on with the job centre, and that will cover. Hmm. It's interesting because in the States, like, so I have to file taxes in both countries now, which is so much fun. But, like, I don't have any U.S. income, so I don't owe any U.S. taxes, Mm. state or federal. So I don't know if it's still the same or not. Yeah. Or, like, it it has changed at some point in time that... Mm. And I imagine it must have done, because this is, like, the 40s, so... I mean, yeah. (laughs) A lot of of change in taxes since then. Yeah, and I imagine that, you know, well... I'm saying I imagine I don't know. So you have federal taxes and state taxes. Do you have like local tax? Like no, we have council tax That's here? like state covered by state. Oh. Um, so like you have property tax if you own property or like some places you have to pay like water and sewage charges and stuff like that. Saying that, I get like those kinds of like utilities charges, water charges, those are like local, like city based or like municipality based yeah but but like taxes taxes are state and federal as far as i i hope i hope i haven't missed some somewhere <laughs> i'm gonna have to hide you in <laughs> like i don't know where can we hide you in europe like Liechtenstein or somewhere yeah 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 some off offshore uh offshore me oh boy um yeah so it it clearly wasn't that they couldn't afford to pay the bills, they just refused to leave the house in daylight when the banks and the utility company offices were open. Which, like, is fair. I hate going to the bank, too. I do, but... But not that much. You know, I'm not gonna lock myself in the house for a decade. No. Yeah, not that much. Uh, the house was falling into disrepair when their mother, Susie Collier, died in 1929. But the brothers never did any work to it allowing it to become completely dilapidated. This, combined with the building being packed full of rubbish, meant it smelled very bad, and because of the smells emanating from the building, people often contacted the police, worried that someone had died inside. That's a bummer. Yeah. Imagine your house just being so bad that people think you're dead. So smelly. Like, dead person smelly. Like, I worry that, like, my bedroom needs airing out sometimes because i yeah keep it shut up a lot because yeah. i'm allergic to pollen 
and it's yeah. harvest season. <laughs> but nobody's ever rung the police thinking I was dead. I know, like, uh, like I get to a point where it's like, oh man, the living room smells so much like wet dog, like just like nasty like dog smell. But it's never, yeah, it's never like corpse bad. Or at least it hasn't been yet. Although some of Rigby's farts are deadly, so. <laughs> They could at one point <laughs> kill both of us and then, you know, bad things would happen. But not yet. Thank God. This happened so often that the police actually worked out a signal system with Langley. <sighs> when someone reported a possible dead body at the house, they would dispatch an officer to check it out. The officer would knock on the door. And as long as Langley gave the officer the pre-agreed signal, <laughs> we don't know what that was. It was like knocking in moss or... Uh, thumbs up or like a little dance, maybe. Or maybe like a flag out of the window. Yeah. <laughs> All was well and the brothers would be left alone. Every so often the, the police would insist on seeing Homer because it had been years since anyone had seen him. On one of these occasions, it took over an hour for Langley to escort an officer through the tunnels to Homer's nest avoiding setting off all of his homemade traps. Another hour for the officer to get back out after seeing and speaking to Homer. And I believe their nests were on, like, the first floor, or uh, second floor. So one up from ground level. Yeah, I think. I might be wrong on that, but I, I seem to remember reading that they were on either their first or second. So either one or two up. Uh-huh. But yeah, an hour. Yeah. So, on March 21st, 1947, when the police received a call from an anonymous man complaining of the smell of decomposition coming from within the house, they thought it would be just another routine trip to the Colliers. They would speak to Langley, possibly seen speak to Homer. Life would go back to normal, or as normal as the Collier brothers could be. That's not what happened. So... There was no answer when the officer knocked on the front door, and the doorbell didn't work, of course. Uh, The door had many locks, and the windows had grills on them because the brothers were so worried about people breaking in. So, unable to make contact with either of the brothers, police assembled a seven-man team and set about breaking into the brownstone. Uh, When they were eventually able to break down the front door, police were met with a foyer completely rammed full of junk in front of a solid wall of newspapers stacked to the ceiling. Uh, Once inside the building, the smell of decomposition got much worse and officers began to theorize that Homer had died and Langley was the anonymous caller. With no clear path through the house and the knowledge that Langley had set booby traps all over the building, officers had no choice but but to begin hauling all the junk out of the building into the street, which obviously drew crowds of onlookers hoping to finally get a look at the strange and reclusive brothers. They found the wall of newspapers, folding chairs and beds, sewing machines, a wine press, and a whole lot of other junk. And that's just in the foyer. Yeah. Yeah. And there are pictures all over the internet of just people just crowded around this street because of just all the junk that was being thrown out. So realizing that it was going to take days to get through all the rubbish an officer smashed a second floor window so it was second floor mm. but i don't know if that's second floor like one up as in like an american second floor yeah or as in two up 
As in, like, because we have ground first, second? I would imagine it would be, like, one story off the ground, like, second story. Yeah. But also, a lot of these brownstones have, like, raised entrances as well, so... Yeah, and this one did. Yeah, so it's probably it's probably closer to what we would imagine as, like, a third floor, kind of, third story. Yeah. You wouldn't want to fall off the ladder up to that window. You don't. It's a, it's a perilous operation. So, smash the second floor window. This is the one that's closest to the brothers' sleeping nests. Or as far as the police knew, it's nearest. <laughs> I mean, it takes an hour just to find it through all uh, the yeah, tunnels. Yeah. You could be anywhere in the building. Yeah, that's the thing. Like Behind the window, they found more newspapers, cardboard boxes, used packaging, a pram, many umbrellas, and a rake. Sure. And it just started to throw this junk out the window. And after five hours of digging through the second floor, officers found the body of Homer Collier in his nest. His body had to be removed from the house via the window and taken down a ladder. So it was strapped Mm. to a stretcher, Uh kind of covered in a body bag as best they could, and then carried down on a ladder. God. Which is a very undignified end. Yeah. Because there's still no path to the front door. A medical examiner found that Homer had only been dead about 10 hours before he was found by officers. And that he had died from a combination of starvation and heart disease. Now this obviously meant that the smell coming from the house could not have been Homer. But police thought that Langley was still alive and that he had essentially abandoned his brother as he lay dying. God. They thought it was just house smells at this point. Uh, they also thought that Langley may have been the one who called the police station so that someone would find his brother. A police officer was posted outside the home in case Langley returned at all, and teams of officers began the horrendous task of emptying out the house, and a manhunt was carried out along the New Jersey coast following rumours that Langley had been spotted down the coast. Homer's funeral was held 11 days after his death on April 1st, and when Langley did not show up at the cemetery or return to the house, officers began to theorize that he had died too and was still somewhere inside the house. Uh, Because even after 11 days, they still hadn't cleared out the house. Actually, they weren't anywhere near clearing out the house yet. That's a lot of days. So on April 8th, 19 days after Homer's body was found, police found the body of Langley Collier just 10 feet from the nest in which Homer had been found. Langley was found in a two-foot-wide tunnel, which was lined with rusty bed springs, and police concluded that Langley had set off one of his own booby traps and got stuck and ended up being crushed by the weight of the junk in that room. The medical examiner determined that Langley had died from asphyxiation on about March 9th, a full 12 days before Homer had died, mean, meaning that Homer had laid paralyzed and blind 10 feet from his brother's decomposing body, slowly dying for 12 days. Langley was buried next to his brother in an unmarked grave at Cypress Hills Cemetery in Brooklyn. Just wow. 10 feet. And it took... It took 19 days. Yeah. Nearly three weeks to figure that out. I wonder if they then had, like, once they'd found uh, Homer's body, they then had to go in through the roof and start emptying out top to bottom. Because otherwise everything was just going to collapse in on itself. Oh, that's true. 
Yeah. And I wonder if that's why it took so long or if it was just the wall of junk yeah. was that severe. I feel like either or both <laughs> could be very likely. And I feel like you'd have to work in teams as well. Like, Oh, yeah. You couldn't have like the same people doing it day in, day out. No. You'd have to have like a rotation. Also, like, imagine the kind of like biohazard that this house is. Like, uh, oh my god. Yeah. In the following weeks, police and workmen recovered, or removed, 120 tonnes of junk from the house. So I'm now going to read out the list of items according to Wikipedia, which is not extensive by any means, and there were some valuables found in the house, which, you know, were recovered and you'll find out what happened <laughs> to them. But this is the junk. Yeah. Contents of the Collier, uh, the Collier Brownstone included... Baby carriages, doll carriages, bicycles, old and rotting food, potato peelers, a collection of guns, glass chandeliers, bowling balls, cameras, camera and developing equipment, horse-drawn carriage, body forms, plaster busts, photos of pin-up girls, painted portraits, hope chests, bed springs, kerosene stove, which Langley had rigged up as a heating system after the utilities were shut off, a child's chair, more than two that. More than 25,000 books, human organs pickled in jars, which likely belonged to their father, the doctor, tapestries, hundreds of metres of unused silks and other fabrics, clocks, clavichord, two organs, banjos, a violin, bugles, accordions, a gramophone and records, 14 pianos, a mixture of upright grand and baby grand, bottles, tin cans, decades worth of magazines and newspapers, a model T... $3,000 in cash, which would be about $40,000 today, and eight live cats. So, I have a question about this. I'm guessing that this brownstone did not have a garage, or perhaps it did. No. It didn't. So, what happened was, I think it was their father owned a Model T that they inherited when he died. They, they took it to bits and then rebuilt it in the basement. I, I, I wondered. Yeah. Um, and also a horse-drawn carriage. I assume was a similar situation. I don't know. Yeah. But like, which like, to be fair, you can do that with a Model T. Like, that's kind of the yeah. beauty of their assembly. <laughs> but just picturing a full-on car and a full-on horse-drawn carriage plus you know 14 pianos like yeah i don't know what kind of condition the the carriage was in whether it had been taken to bits and reassembled or if it was like just okay we found this pile of crap and we think it will assemble into (laughs) a carriage you know there's wheels there's a general shell it's kind of like um post-apocalyptic legos like (laughs) 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 <laughs> well, if you put all if you put this pile together, then it will become <laughs> Oh my god. I- I'm amazed by the eight live cats. Like were they pets? Had they just moved in because there's clearly a surplus of food and junk? Well, I was gonna say, like, I'm sure they loved all the food hanging around in there. Yeah. And obviously it was absolutely infested with rats as well. But they didn't count them. Well, that's probably f- f- to everyone's benefit. Potato yeah. peelers. I want to know how many is 
the yeah, thing. Yeah, I, I want to know why they got their own specific yeah, mention. Yeah, like, was there, like, a barrel of them, a whole room of potato <laughs> peelers? Also, that's <laughs> very specific. I just... Yeah. So, I like stuff. I'm definitely, like, a tchotchke person. Same. I like, you know, I, I, I like to think of my sort of design aesthetic as, like, controlled clutter or like mildly controlled clutter <laughs> yeah mine is 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 not not controlled clutter mine, <laughs> mine is kind of clutter <laughs> but like that will get tidied up when someone comes to visit well exactly but like this this terrifies me yeah like my aesthetic is a life lived yeah like yeah i've got tchotchkes i've got tourist tat and i've got all sorts of junk that once i die some poor soul probably you if depending <coughs> who dies first of the two of us you know because i'm gonna be like a mad spinster my whole life <laughs> um well people people ain't shit i don't want i don't want another one i can barely look after myself i mean fair like yeah once i die you and an assortment of others in my will will have to trawl through all my junk that's meaningless and worthless, but it's my life. That's the thing, yeah. Like, there's a shelf above where I'm sat right now that, okay, I think I sent pictures to you because when I uh, put yes. it up, that's got, it's got like skull shot glasses. Yeah. Who the fuck needs them? But somebody bought them for me and I like that aesthetic. I've got like a sugar skull. Yeah. I've got... I've got a piece of wood that's been carved into an owl. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a Grim Reaper money box that I won on the 2P machines in the Isle of Wight about seven years ago. And it's just funny. Yeah. I like it. it. You know, I've got all that junk and I've got like shot glasses from places I've been. Yep. Like when I've been to Greece or I've got like little candle holders from when I was in Spain. And... Yeah, I've got sh- loads of junk, but it's my life. It's where I've been. Yeah, like I, and that's the thing. Like I, I have, I know this from my past. Like I used to save magazines when I was a teenager, and like newspaper articles that I thought were like interesting. Mm-hmm. And I have learned that I need to be very careful to tread the line of like legitimate memory or items tied to legitimate memories and just trash yeah and like i have done the whole like clean out a whole house full of junk go through boxes and boxes of school projects that you're you don't need like you keep one you keep the best one from the year and then you get the get rid of the rest or like uh (laughs) like i had a whole storage unit of stuff when we sold the house that I lived in as a teenager that I had to go through and get rid of like 90% of it. So like, but still I find myself like, Oh, I could use this uh, paper bag for something. Yeah. I was like, no, (laughs) stop it. So like this kind of thing, I feel a little bit personally attacked. And also (laughs) I feel like I need to light a match and set everything I own on fire. Just, I think we will have an intervention before you get to this level. I mean, the thought of having 14 pianos kind of thrills me. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, but if you had 14 rooms 
in which to put a piano. Ah, just like, and you think about a full-size grand, that's like nine feet long, eight feet long. Uh, you know, there's no word. That's huge. There's it's fucking huge. It's, I mean, the 25,000 books thing. I mean, I'm like halfway there. <laughs> yeah. Same. Across, across all of my various book collections uh, in uh, <laughs> different parts of the world, I'm at least at like, probably like 5,000. Oh, I'm not quite that bad yet. But like, yeah. I like, I have boxes of stuff. Like, I used to keep magazines and stuff as a teenager, and then we moved house, and I was like, why do I have them? Because it's not like I go back and read them, and I just chuck them all in the recycle bin. But yeah, I have stuff like boxed up from, like, when I was a teenager and stuff, and every few years I go through it, and I get rid of a bit more. Yeah, I kind of weed out. It's like, uh, this can go. Yeah. And eventually, like, it will all go. Yeah. But it's just, it's a slow process. Yeah. That's It's kind of funny, because, like, the gremlin is is, like, the exact opposite to that where she's just like well every year after i finished a year of school i fit all of the things that i wanted from that year into like half of a shoebox, and then i just threw the rest out i'm like i have this drawing i made when i was three years old <laughs> yeah i think my parents still have like silly things that i made at school that i'm like yeah. why but I, so I kept all like all my school books and everything. And then when I was in my early twenties, I was like, the, "The fuck? Why? You know? Yeah. I, I, I don't care. I don't go and look at them. And I was like, I may as well just bin them. Yeah. I because they're just taking up space. I um, I had all my like middle school and high school textbooks, and they were all just sitting in the attic. And I realized that like this stack of textbooks was probably worth like. Four hundred, five hundred dollars. So I sold them on eBay. I think it's just like I'm not gonna look at you know biology one hundred and one or whatever. Like, but like we're very big on charity shops in my family. Yeah. So a lot of our stuff comes from charity shops, and a lot of our stuff goes back to charity shops. So especially books and stuff. Yeah. Like there's a charity shop near us where like the books are fifty p. Because some charity shops near us are an absolute rip-off and it's like £4 a book. And I'm like, hell no. no. But there's one near us where it's like 50p a book. So we'll go, we'll buy the books. And when we've read them, we'll just take them straight back. Yeah, no, totally. So I'm kind of good in that respect that like if there's stuff that's going to be worth something to someone else. Yeah, or useful. I will pass it like on. But yeah, I have a lot of junk. Yeah, same. But, uh, but after recording this episode, we're all going to go and and take a hard look in that dark corner that you don't like to go into and just throw out some stuff that you don't need. I think that's everyone's challenge. <laughs> By the time we get back in the next episode... Tomorrow. <laughs> tomorrow. Or let's say like a week from now, or like by November, we'll all have thrown out five useless things from our house that we don't actually need. <laughs> that's your homework, everyone. So I'm just looking at like my pile of clothes. <laughs> really i mean because it's like i've worn them once so i can't put them back i can't put them away but they can have at least another one or two wears before they get washed oh yes i have a box for that in my bedroom yeah i've just got a mound (laughs) (laughs) um i was given a box because it used to be a chair and then the chair became the floor and so my wife said put all your shit in this box or i'm throwing it out (laughs) 
But like, yes, I'm just looking around here and I have an empty, like, bubble mailer. Why did I keep this? Yeah. I don't need this. I have, I can see the, I got a a Baby Yoda yeah. doll at Christmas because I think Baby Yoda's really cute and everyone keeps telling me I'm old and I should be married and having children and I'm like, look, I have not a child, I have the child. The, the child. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the box that he came in, I still have. Yeah. I don't know why, because it's not like it's going to be worth anything because I've taken him out of the box. Well, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that can get thrown out. I will throw that out today. I mean, I don't have a box just for my Apple product boxes. That's definitely not a, a thing that I have. <laughs> They're just such nice boxes. But I see how that sounds crazy. When you say it out loud. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. I understand it. That <laughs> I have like stacks of shoe boxes that have junk in them, but my mirror, because it's not a full length mirror and I don't have wall space to put it where it'll be useful, so it's stacked up on top of boxes. Nice, nice, nice. Okay, so so everyone listening, five pieces of junk. The the two of us, ten. <laughs> Clearly. <Yeah. laughs> we need more. Help. Right. Well, we're having a week off after Halloween, yeah. aren't we? Because we've given you like a thousand yeah. episodes. <laughs> so we're having a week off. So when we all come back in November, five pieces. Keep a list and we'll, we'll see what, what everyone's gotten rid of. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Go team. But yeah, so I guess we should finish the story or whatever. We probably should. Just, you know, you, you get stuck on that point. I, I feel like it, it has to have its own... It's a lot of stuff, so it needs a lot of commentary. <laughs> it does. But we're nearly there. We've nearly made it to the end. <laughs> so close. So close, everyone. So, once the house was finally cleared in June 1947, so let's think about this. It They started clearing it in April? Is that right? Yeah. June. <laughs> uh, no, March. It was March 21st was when... Oh, it was March. The smell... Was reported. Of yeah. death was first reported. So that's a good quarter of a year right there. March, April, May. So yeah, three months roughly. Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. So uh cleared in June 1947, it was deemed a fire hazard and a danger to the public. Uh mainly because by that point, after 30 years of neglect, the stacks of trash were pretty much the only thing holding the building up. I'm not surprised. So the following month, the house was demolished and the lot was turned into uh, a pocket park named after the brothers, uh, which still stands today. There was actually outrage in 2002 when the Harlem Fifth Avenue Block Association tried to have the name changed. Uh, local residents and historians believe that the brothers are as much a part of Harlem history as anything else. And the name, the Collier Brothers Park, remains. Some items, including the chair that Homer died in, were sent to various dime museums and private collections. A few valuable items were auctioned off and raised about $2,000. The rest of the estate was valued at about $91,000 or $1.2 million today due to the large amount of jewelry and other valuables. 56 people made claim to the estate. Uh, they were mostly first and second cousins although there was one woman who claimed to be a long-lost sister of Homer and Langley, but could not produce any documentation to prove it. 
Uh, a decade later, this same woman had claimed to be the widow of a wealthy recluse from Pittsburgh who had been murdered in 1937. Seems fishy. Yeah. Clearly that's just her kink. It's just, it's, that's just her hobby. The estate was finally settled in 1952, and the court ruled in favor of 23 of the 56 claimants. As well as the tiny pocket pack in their name, the brothers also have another strange legacy. In some states in the USA, including most of the East Coast, a collier mansion, collier's mansion, or just collier, is a term used by firefighters to describe a house of hoarders that is so full of junk that it has become a danger to the occupants or to first responders. I've never heard that, but uh, it seems appropriate. And that is the story of the Collier Brothers. I don't think I have anything else to add, really. I know. Like, it's really sad, I think. It is. It is something to add. Like, it's just sad. Like, And the, the fact that basically what kept them in this house for years and years and years is like fear. And racism. Well, that, yeah. That part's not so sad. No. But, like, it's tough. Yeah. The the thing, I think it's like, you know, you get all these shows like Obsessive Compulsive Hoarders and yeah. The Hoarder Next Star and things like that. And it's clearly just very exploitative, cheap reality TV when these people clearly need, like, psychological help yeah. and counseling and things like that. This is on a whole other level. And in all these reality shows, there's someone there who's like, you know, the person who writes into the TV show who is like, okay. Who's called for help, yeah. Yeah. My my mum has tunnels through her house and there's that much crap, like, yeah. please help. Yeah. They didn't have this. There wasn't, like, the police knew. Everyone knew what kind of state this house was in and nobody did anything. Yeah. And the fact that there was 56 claimants to the estate, okay, only 23 of them received any kind of payout yeah but it shows there was some There's, there was people there was a big family yeah there was a lot of people who knew and nobody stopped it and i think that's the that to me is like the worst part because that is okay it's not illegal but it's very negligent yeah and like i mean how convenient to come in at the end and claim proceeds from the estate and not have had any part in like taking care of these two men before they died. Yeah. Because they were shot in for, what, 13 years? Yeah. No, 15 years, sorry. Yeah. So, it's 15 years these cousins hadn't seen their family. And I mean, okay, I don't see all my family that often, but I at least know they're alive. Yeah, you know they're not being crushed by the weight of their own junk. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know. And, and also, what's interesting to me is that, like, obviously... Homer's stroke was traumatic, not just for him, but for his brother. It seems like something happened to cause a great psychological and emotional shift for Langley to then decide that this was an okay way to live. Yeah. And I do wonder if part of it is that they never moved out of the family home, and I wonder if they just couldn't take care of themselves properly. Yeah, it could could well be. And they kind of managed for a few years, but then when Homer got ill, yeah, it was kind of like that was almost like a breaking point. Yeah, and and also it's just like yeah, like it's 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 home. It's what 
they know it they know it's safe it's like this is here yeah we can be here and it's fine but yeah it's like it's it's fascinating but it's horrifying <laughs> yeah isn't let me say there's there's technically it's not technically true crime there's no crime committed no but it is so negligent on everyone else's part i also just think like the cops knew what was going on and i understand the whole like it's private property and that the one of the owners was you know cognizant enough to say like i don't want you here i don't want you intervening but also you get to a certain point yeah and if you have to have a signal with the de- police department to prove that everyone in the building is alive that seems like a public health issue yeah and there comes a point where it's like if you have a child and you're like oh no I'm not treating my child for this disease because I know better. Yeah. I know this is a very tenuous, um, not tenuous, touchy subject. Yeah. Contentious. Because of COVID and everything. Contentious, that's it. But like, if you let your child suffer rather than get them the help they need, that eventually becomes child abuse. Yes. And neglect. Yeah. It's the same situation here. Yeah. Yeah, okay, Homer is an adult, but he's clearly a vulnerable adult. Yes. Okay, attitudes are very different in the 30s and 40s. But, like, there comes a point where your desire to be like, no, I will look after them. There comes, and it's the same in, like, carer situations as well. Oh, yeah. Where, like, families are caring for, like, a a disabled or elderly family member. There comes a point where the wishes of the family have to be overruled if... They become detrimental to whoever they're caring for. It's just, it's, it's just very sad. It's very sad. All round. So, so none of us get to this point. Everyone, get rid of your five pieces of crap. Yeah. And uh, report back to us. Send us a little Instagram story of your trash pile, and uh, <laughs> we'll all just smooth sail on right through. So... That's that's that. That's that's the story of the Collier Brothers and the Collier Mansion. And uh, come back again tomorrow for another strange and true Halloween-type uh, story. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.